0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today in the Scanna studio is Congressman James Claiborne, who represents the 6th District of South Carolina. And he has written a very interesting autobiography entitled, Blessed Experiences, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black. And I wanted to get the subtitle in there, Congressman, because I think that's a very interesting part of your life story. And welcome to the journal, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about why you chose that particular title. There are a lot of folks who would say, well, he's an African-American. Why did he want to throw in about being Southern?
1: Well, uh, because um, I I think uh, this book, when I first started uh, thinking about writing it, back in 1971, I was on the staff of John West uh, Mm -hmm. when he was governor. uh, And John West laid out a pretty progressive agenda. He talked in his, his inaugural address about uh, a government that was uh, colorblind. Mm-hmm. And so he had proposed the creation of what is now known as the South Carolina Human Affairs Commission. Mm-hmm. And um, part of my job was to sit, on, sit in on committee meetings, subcommittee meetings, and to take the temperature of what was going on in those meetings so the governor would know how to conduct himself in trying to get uh, his agenda uh, through the legislature. One day, while sitting in one of those meetings, uh, one of the legislators said something uh, that I thought was uncalled for and unbecoming. Mm -hmm. And after the meeting, I went up to him and I told him what I felt about what he said. Mm -hmm. His explanation to me was, well, uh, Clyburn, you have to understand, I'm a Southerner. Mm -hmm. Well, that struck me, and I didn't think that being a Southerner meant that you had license to be insulting to people, especially uh, people who look like me.
0: Who also and, happened to be born
1: here. Absolutely. And whose parents <laughs> were born here. And, and so uh, I um, went up to Phil Gross, who was uh, my colleague, and you remember Phil very well. Mm-hmm. And I said to him that evening, I said, you know, Phil, when this experience is over, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a book about it. And I am going to called that book I Too Am a Southerner because I don't feel that being a Southerner meant that you uh, uh, had to be white or you had to have uh, thoughts that uh, toward people who happen to be black uh, that may not uh, be becoming Uh, and I said you know you're a Southerner and uh, you don't talk that way and you certainly uh, don't think that way as far as I can determine uh, and so I just want to deal with that uh, in my book. But when I started writing the book, I sort of hit a wall. I think you'll call it a writer's block.
0: Uh, uh, understand. Been there. Done that. <laughs> <laughs> I ever heard
1: so much about that. I just
0: could not get this thing done.
1: And, and so I'm sitting there one day uh, trying to figure out what to do. And I've suddenly remembered that my father, a fundamentalist minister, used to take his last meal of the week, Every week around uh, six o'clock on Friday, and he would not take another meal, full meal, until after uh, his church services on Sunday. Okay. And he would spend all day Saturday uh, fasting, reading, writing, and he would always be hy- humming his favorite hymn, okay. "Blessed Assurance." Okay. And so um, I, I went and I got that hymn, uh, the hymn book, and I read that hymn. And it it, it just opened up the things for me. So I went back to my computer, I started writing, and and sure enough, words just flowed. And so I decided to change the title of the book to Blessed Experiences. And in order to keep the theme that I wanted to carry out throughout the book, I then put a colon there and says, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black. So that's how I got to that
0: theme. Absolutely. That's quite a story, and of course, for those folks who do know South Carolina history and the demographics, for a majority of our state's history, a majority of the population of this state was African American.
1: Absolutely. The Great Migration started taking place late 20s, early 30s, when the numbers changed, and of course, uh, uh, there is now an in-migration taking place. And a lot of uh, it has to do with a lot of uh, people of color, African Americans, if you please, who left back in the 30s, 40s, all the way down through the 50s, even 60s. I graduated graduated college in 1961. My wife and I went through the yearbook. Uh, Over 80% of our class left South
0: Carolina. And that that was SC State? South
1: Carolina State in Orangeburg. My wife is from Berkeley County, Monk's Corner, or the suburb of Monk's Corner, uh, out of the Whitesville area. Uh, I was born and raised over in Sumter. My mother is from Lee County. My father is from Kershaw County, Mm -hmm. like every Clyburn in the world. And so I'm Southern.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm South Carolinian. I'm not going to let anybody take that away from me.
0: Well, you you mentioned that in-migration, and I had a very interesting experience. Gosh, i will say 25 years ago makes me seem a lot older than that. (laughs) But I was teaching summer school, and unlike my usual timing, I was running a little bit late. And somebody was talking to my class. Well, I had an older African-American woman in that class, Eddie Mae Brown, and we were actually discussing, she was discussing reconstruction in South Carolina, and particularly the Sea Islands, Mm -hmm. uh, Port Royal. And one of the things she was telling these young students was, she said, you know, when I did my student teaching from SC State, I did it down there in Port Royal, this woman had Left South Carolina, mm. gone to New York, spent her life, but she would come back here. Right. And she her final thing in telling the class, and I just let her talk for a while, was she was growing up in Columbia. She was not allowed to walk across the university campus. Right. And now she had retired back. She wanted to come back home. Her family was back here. She was proud to be able to take and wanted to take courses at the University of South Carolina. Yeah. But she taught those 20 or 25 young people a lesson from yeah. life yeah. that they couldn't get from any textbook. Uh,
1: absolutely, and uh, you know, um, I'm as I said, the class of '61. I uh, think it was just a year or two later uh, when the things uh, uh, began to change. Uh, the big thing being, of course, the Harvey uh, Gantt uh, integrating Clemson uh, back in 1963. Uh, so I was just ahead of that uh, that curve. So. I do believe it would have been okay for me to walk across the campus back in nineteen sixty-one, but um, there were some significant changes uh, uh, starting to take place in the late fifties and early early sixties, and and we've come uh, in some instances full circle in South Carolina.
0: Well, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago your your dear wife, yes. and I think the story of how you all met is <laughs> is is one we'd like to share with our listeners.
1: Sure. Well, it's a very interesting story. It was March 15th, 1960. Uh, Those of us uh, who were considered to be student activists uh, down at South Carolina State and Claflin University next door had uh, organized this big march. Uh, If you remember, the students had set in up at North Carolina Mm A&T on February 1, 1960. Around February 15th, a group of us went down to the square in Arnsburg and attempted to sit in at the S.H. Crest 5 and 10 cent store. But when we got there, they had removed the the, the tops uh, off all of the stools, and we, we kind of figured that was not going to be a comfortable sit-down. <laughs> and, and so uh, we went back to the campus, and we decided we were going to have this massive march down on the square. And sure enough, we organized, uh, there were... Seven of us called the Orangeburg Seven. Uh, by some people, we don't get any notoriety for that. I, I talk about it a little bit in the book. We organized this big march. We go downtown, big group going down Amelia Street. I was leading that group. About how, about how many? You know? Oh, there were a couple of thousand, Ooh, uh, maybe, okay. uh, maybe more. A big group went down uh, Russell Street, okay. and a big group went down John C. Calhoun. I was leading the group down Amelia Street, and of course, uh, I was identified by the authorities as one of the leaders. You're a troublemaker. <laughs> yes. So I was. We were arrested. 388 of us were arrested that day. We filled up all the jails, and of course, they couldn't put 2,000 people in. And they just herded the rest of the students back to the campuses. Those students who went back to the campuses. My wife was among them went into, they figured some creative ways of getting into the cafeteria uh, to get food down to those of us who were arrested. Now, we got arrested somewhere around 10 a.m. in the morning. uh, Maybe it was before noon. And we were still in jail around uh, 6.30 that evening uh, and had not had anything to eat. So these students brought us food. Some of the students who were arrested had been put in this compound uh, right outside of the uh, Orangeburg City Jail, the Pink Castle, we called it. And uh, they were cold and was, uh, they had been wet up with water hoses and they threw blankets and stuff over to the students. Well, they herded us all into one place to wait to be bailed out. And while I was standing there hungry, uh, I, I I made some comment about how hungry I was. And there was this little 92-pounder walking toward me with a hamburger in her hands. And she thrust it toward me, I reached for it, she pulled it back, broke the hamburger in half, gave me half of it, and she ate the other half. And uh, I was so grateful for that half hamburger. Uh, I married her 18 months later. Uh, (laughs) And that's how we had our formal meeting. Now, there's a sequel to this story. We're celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary down in Charleston. And some of the same people, Bobby Doctor, among them, who got arrested that day, he and his sister, his sister had married uh, Elijah Rogers. We're all classmates, my brother John and his wife Vivian. We're all down in Charleston celebrating this 10th anniversary. So when we came from dinner, we were at my house, and... uh, The ladies were all sitting around uh, the dining room table, and um, uh, the guys were down in the rec room having some libations. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about uh, how fortunate we were and how lucky we were uh, in the the choice of uh, of a life partner. Well, all of a sudden, Emily shows up at the door. And while I was telling them about this chance meeting in the Orangeburg Jail, And she says, that's what you think. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at her, I said, what do you mean, uh, what I think? And that's when she told me that one day uh, earlier, she and her roommate were standing in her dormitory window, and she saw me walking across the campus with a young lady uh, I was dating at the time. She said to her roommate, they do not make a good couple. He is going to be my husband. (laughs) And she set out to stalk me for a while. Uh, And so that uh, meeting that day was not by chance. She had that sandwich, and she knew exactly uh, what she was going to do with
0: it. And
1: she ran me in. And uh this past June twenty fourth we celebrated our fifty third wedding
0: anniversary. That's fabulous. Congratulations. Fifty fifty-three years. Thank you. Well, she as any good Southern woman <laughs> would know, uh, way to a man's heart, it's through his stomach. And that's she, right, that's right. And it worked. She got it. Yeah. Um let's back up a little bit and talk about your growing up years. Sure. Rural South Carolina. Yeah. And you had some experiences there sure. as a as a teenager down in Sumter County, right?
1: Sure. Well you know, I grew up really in what we would call the city part of Sumter. My dad came off a farm in Kershaw County. And my mother off of a farm in Lee County. Uh, her father was a big cotton farmer. She talked to her dad. I never understood how she did this. Into letting her go to Camden. Nobody in her family had gone to high school. And she really wanted to go to high school in some kind of way. Her father allowed her to move to Camden, and she lived with a family that you may have known of they called the Dibbles. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were a pretty well-to-do African-American family there, and they were all affiliated with the Methodist School across the street from them on Campbell Street, Mm -hmm. Mather Academy. Mm -hmm. So my mother moved in with them and washed dishes, cleaned the house, And they, in turn, sent her across the street to Mather Academy. It was transformational for her. Well, she met my dad and decided that they wanted to get married. And she stayed at Mather through the 10th grade. Now, at Mather, you had to go to the 12th grade to graduate. It was a private school. But the public schools in that day only went to the 11th grade. Mm -hmm. And so she in order to marry my dad as quickly as possible, she transferred across the street to Jackson High School. Mm -hmm. And she went to Jackson for the 11th grade and, of course, was able to graduate. She and my dad got married. They then moved to Sumter because both of them wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mars College was there. uh, And so he got this call to pastor uh, the Church of God in Sumter, they then moved to Sumter. Uh, he was pastoring over in, uh, in the, um, uh, Fairfield County before that. So that's how we got to Sumter. Now, my mother always wanted me to go to Mather. She wanted all of us to go to Mather. I didn't want to go to Mather. I uh, played in the band. and Mather right, all, let's,
0: let's stop for a second ex- and explain to folks, because there were any number of elite black schools, right. particularly high schools in South Carolina, back before the 1950s, Absolutely. simply because public education for African-Americans was woefully underfunded. Underfunded. But there were schools in Camden, sure. schools in Aiken, in Charleston. Betas Academy uh, mm-hmm. down in Aiken.
1: Barnard uh, up in Chester, where uh, Felicia Richard's mother uh, went. Coulter Academy was up uh, near S- Seneca. And uh, Harbison was here where Hobbeson is now that was a campus uh, I think it was the Presbyterian school it was Presbyterian and uh, Mather of course was a Methodist school so these schools uh, were sponsored by churches and they were as you you say the elite you got a pretty good education there but Mather didn't have a band and I played the clarinet the saxophone and I had a great experience the reason I mentioned uh, that is because though I wanted to play music, wanted to be in the band. And I had been offered uh, from the 11th grade, or really 10th grade, I was, uh, was targeted for a music scholarship uh, to Alabama State. And I, had, I was a graduate. The guy who played the first seat uh, in the alto saxophone had gone to Alabama State on the scholarship, and he had talked the band director into uh, offering me a scholarship. Uh, I played first seat uh, in the clarinet. Uh, So Christmas 1955, no black units had ever been allowed to participate in the Christmas parade. And uh, we had petitioned for our high school band, Lincoln High School, to play in the parade. Finally, they agreed to allow us to play in the parade in 1955. So when we got down to what we call the foot of the bridge there on Manon Avenue in Sumter, where we always lined up for the Christmas parade, it was the practice that the last unit in the parade would be Santa Claus riding on the fire truck. Behind Santa Claus would be uh, horseback riders from the local equestrian Mm -hmm. uh, facility there Uh, and of of course that would always be last because you can imagine Mm -hmm. uh, the horses didn't have diapers back then uh, and they left little deposits along the way that would not be becoming uh, of uh, any other unit following them except on this day they assigned the Lincoln High School Band to be the unit behind the horses and it was tough, uh, marching, uh, trying to avoid those deposits along the way, trying to breathe in as you have to breathe to play the clarinet with the aroma uh, that you can imagine. That experience uh, sent me to Mather Academy. Uh, I decided that day that I could do without the band, and so I talked my mom into uh to let me go to Mather, so I, I went over to Mather after that. My brother John had already gone.
0: Well, now didn't you sometimes substitute and go out into the to help be a pep band for the rural high school Since you sure, hit? because I seem to remember a story yeah. you had at a country store. Yes,
1: one of the stories that I took out of the book. Mm-hmm. When you remember, I submitted this book. I had one hundred eighty-six thousand words. The University of South Carolina Press it says you got to cut this down. You don't want more than one hundred fifty thousand words. So I had to take thirty-six thousand words out of the book. So when I went back through the book, uh, reworking it, the Trayvon Martin situation occurred down in Florida. And I had this story in the book about what happened with me and two of my good friends at the time. They were two years, uh, one was two years behind me, one year behind me in school and one was two. But we were close friends, Freddie Carter and Charles Gatson. And they were not on the band. And so we were going to play, the Lincoln High School band was going to play for Eastern High School's Homecoming. Mm-hmm. So uh, we go out to play for them. I talked my mother into letting me take the car so my two buddies could go with me. Uh, it was Eastern High School's Homecoming, so you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to go and uh, see how the major uh the uh, cheerleaders in that instance, they didn't have major rats, the cheerleaders looked and maybe other uh, young ladies as well. So we figured the two of us, uh, three of us in this car, we could uh, be a little more attractive to the young ladies on the campus. So we go out there, my mom's let me use the car. I ask a friend of mine to put my clarinet on the bus with the rest of the band leaders. Well, when I got there, this friend had forgotten to put my clarinet on the bus. And the band director would not let me eat lunch with them because uh, I had, I didn't have an instrument to play. So the three of us went back out to 378. Uh, We had seen the store out there and we decided to go there and get lunch. Well, when we got in there, the guy started overcharging us for items. And I took issue with it. He didn't like me taking issue with him. So I put all the stuff on the counter and counted them out. Well, maybe this guy couldn't count, but whatever the issue was, he told me that an item was 25 cents when clearly on the package it was 15. And I said, well, I thought this item was 15 cents, as it says. He said, well, you got another thought coming. To which I said, okay, I'll think again and things began to escalate. Uh, and so these two guys grabbed me, and uh, uh, they could see that it was leading to no good, took me out of the store. We got in the car, and as soon as I turned the ignition, the gentleman walked out, and he had this long pistol, which I understood later was a Colt 45. I didn't know what it was at the time. He laid it right on the inside the window of the car, and said, you guys owe me 50 more cents. And, of course, by this time, uh, the guys were yelling and getting out of the car, and I'm still being a bit belligerent. And uh, they gave him the 50 cents. We drove off, and, of course, that ended the incident, except that uh, maybe a couple years later, I was a student at South Carolina State, when I got a a call from uh, either Bubba or Fred, I don't remember which one it was, and told me that gentleman, had shot and killed a 16-year-old some two years later. Mm. I took that out of the book because I didn't want anybody to think that I was trading on the Trayvon Martin thing.
0: Okay. Well, are there any other stories that are not in the book you'd like to share with us?
1: Well, yeah, there are some stories I took out of the book, and um, uh, some people say uh, that uh, maybe I should wait until I'm no longer in public life
0: okay. uh, to talk about them. All right. Okay. <laughs> now, you were a pretty good Sandlot baseball player, weren't you?
1: I was. Uh, high school, too. I played baseball. In fact, I started playing uh, on the first team when I was in eighth grade. And I played for the whole time I was at uh, at Lincoln High School. Well, Mather uh, Mather was about books. And uh, they, didn't ha- they had football and basketball but didn't have baseball. Lincoln had baseball. Okay. And I was not that good a football player. Couldn't play basketball at all. And I played first string baseball from the eighth all the way through the 11th grade. And I am um, uh, mid on the one arrow. I made one fielding arrow. Couldn't hit, couldn't mm-hmm. run, but I could really feel. And my contemporary across town was Bobby Richardson, who uh, uh, played uh, American Legion ball mm-hmm. and went on to become. Uh, a star second baseman. But, of course, in those days, you never met on the field. We never met on the field or in person. I read the newspapers every day, so I knew uh, he was uh, one heck of a baseball player because he he was allowed to play American Legion ball, and we were not. So there were some baseball players, quite frankly, uh, except for the bat. I could put myself up against uh, uh, Bobby Richardson, and there were a lot of people on the team with me who were very, very good baseball players, uh, but remember, all of this was uh, when um, Jagger Robinson had not
0: uh, had just come on the scene. Well, didn't didn't you have a uh, a local young man became the first African-American in the American League, Sumter? Oh, was, no,
1: Camden. Camden, excuse yeah, me. Uh,
0: yes, Larry Dobie. Larry Dobie. Uh, Larry Dobie uh, was from Camden.
1: His mother was just a great friend of mine. Larry uh, left Camden, and he really uh, was noticed while living up in Patterson, New Jersey. Oh, okay. uh, a lot of people from Camden, a lot of black people from Camden uh, went to Patterson, New Jersey. In fact, I spent my summers in Patterson, New Jersey uh, because of that culture. You know, one person would go and get a job, and so we knew around Camden that you could go to Paterson, New Jersey and get jobs for the summer. Uh, Emily and I got married June 24, 1961 in Patterson, New Jersey, and, and I thought that that's where I was going to live uh, growing up. In fact, I often tease the congressman, who, Bill Pasquale, who's a very, very good friend of mine. We have dinner together almost every night. I tell him all the time, Bill, you owe your seat to me. Uh, because if I had stayed in Patterson, New Jersey after I got married, uh, I would be in your seat rather than
0: you. <laughs> congressman, I need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edwards' journal, and I'm talking with Congressman James Clyburn about his autobiography and his career. All right, Congressman, let's segue up to the 1970s. You're working for Governor John West. And so let's sort of chronicle your political career from that point to to the present.
1: Well, John West was an interesting person. John West's father was from the area of, uh, of Crescent County, Westville. Uh, John West uh, uh, grew up out on Black River Road uh, right outside of Camden in the Charlotte Thompson precinct. And... F- my father, remember, I'm a Clyburn, a lot of people may not know it, but uh, right outside of Kershaw, South Carolina, is a little area on the old highway maps named Clyburn. And my father came off one of those plantations out there. And so my dad, it turns out, knew
0: John West's dad. And his dad was killed in that tragic fire. His dad was killed in the fire. Folks might not remember, there was a fire in a schoolhouse, Mm -hmm. and dozens of people, they were in an upstairs auditorium, it was a wooden building, and dozens of people died, among them John West's dad.
1: That's exactly right.
0: My dad knew all of this, and
1: we had never discussed this. There were a lot of things my dad did not discuss with me until... I mean, the fact that uh, he was not allowed to go to school beyond the seventh grade. My dad didn't tell me that story until I found out about it from someone who went to college with him. Uh, he took an interest exam, got admitted to college, but he was not allowed to graduate from college because he could not produce a high school diploma. I didn't know any of that until a, a Mr. Horace Dixon, who I ran into, the in minister, who was on Morris College's Board of Trustees, told me that my dad did not show up for his senior year. And I confronted my dad with this about three or four months before he passed away when he finally told me the story. Well, uh, that's the backdrop to uh, my running for office in 1970. I was declared the winner for the House of Representatives from Charleston in uh, November 1970, uh, around 10 o'clock in the evening. Something happened. Uh, between 10 o'clock in the evening and uh, 2.30, or 3 o'clock the next morning, and uh, I was counted out. When I was alerted to the fact by a local reporter that um, something had going wrong at the courthouse, where they were counting the ballots, we went down there to be told that somebody forgot to carry a one, that rather than being a 500-vote winner, I was a 500-vote loser, a difference of 1,000 votes. Well, most people didn't believe that that's what really happened. But the next morning, when the reporter asked me, who is still living, Barbara Williams, what happened? I don't know what made me say this. I just said, uh, it looks like I didn't get enough votes. said, all climbing. You know what everybody's saying. What happened? What do you think happened? I said, I think I should have gotten enough votes. And that was the headline the next day. John West had just gotten elected governor uh, on that Tuesday. This is Thursday morning. I made this statement on Wednesday. It was a headline in the newspapers on Thursday. John West was stopping through Charleston on his way to Kiowa Island to for a little hour and hour after the election, mm-hmm. picked up the newspapers, he seized us. And he went to a phone booth and called my wife, told her, uh, have me call him. And I called him and he asked me to meet him that uh, following Monday morning here in Columbia. I met him. And that's when he offered me a job on his staff. And he said to me on that day that uh, we will not leave i fallen uh, on the battlefield. So I go to work for him, and, of course, that led to uh, other things. I became the uh, state president of the Young Democrats. And then I uh, ran for office again mm-hmm. in 1978, ran for secretary of state. You need 50% plus one to win the primary, and I got 48%. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight years after that, 1986, I ran again. Once again, I got 48%. This meant that this was my third loss. A friend of mine said to me at the time, uh, what are you going to do now? You just had your third loss, and you know what they say, three strikes and you're out. Mm -hmm. I said to my friend, that's a baseball rule. And nobody should live their lives by a baseball rule. And I made up my mind that I was going to figure out how to win. Uh, And so in 1992, in the race of five people, Everybody started out saying that um, uh, they didn't know who was going to get to the runoff, but there was certainly going to be a runoff. Uh, And about three weeks out, they started writing, well, it looks like Jim Clyburn is going to be in the runoff, but uh, who will be in the runoff with him, we don't know yet. Well, uh, when the votes were counted that night, uh, Jim Clyburn had 56% of the vote. So Uh, there, there was no runoff. So there
0: was no runoff. And so that's how I got elected to the Congress, and I've been there ever since. And '92 is is a, of course, the same year that Bill Clinton was elected, right? President. There's some stories there, <laughs> about that. If, do you mind talking about that? No, I don't mind talking about. In fact, I opened the book. Probably most. Bill uh,
1: Clinton and I got to be uh, pretty good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, but for Bill Clinton. Uh, I don't think we would have the Matthew J. Perry United States Courthouse today. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, you know, even after we got the bill approved, I uh, had a big fight with Strom Thurmond uh, over naming that courthouse for uh, uh, for Matthew Perry. Strom Thurmond wanted that courthouse to be the Strom Thurmond annex, to be the annex to...
0: The federal uh, building.
1: The federal building. Well, I fought that, and there were a lot of newspaper stories, even some editorials about it uh, back then. He finally relented thanks to John Napier uh, who used to be in the same seat I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Napier is a great friend. He turned out to be uh, to this day he's a very good friend and
0: Mutual he and I were at Davidson College together. Oh yeah yeah you know, I've, I've, I've known John for almost 50 years now. <laughs> I did not know that Well John yeah. is just a great guy and
1: uh, we don't have any problems get beyond the, getting beyond the fact that he's Republican. I'm Democrat, but we are good friends. He interceded. I sat down with John and explained it to him, and he went uh, to Strom Thurmond's staff uh, and explained to them why uh, it made good sense for them to to leave that alone. Mm-hmm. So we got the bill passed to name uh, the courthouse for Matthew Perry. Mm-hmm. But if you remember back then, the big scandals had developed over courthouses in New York mm-hmm. and boston Uh, they became these palatial buildings and costing the taxpayers uh, one of them was over 300 million dollars and so bill clinton had declared there will not be any more courthouses but he wanted a bill passed the the crime bill and when he called me to ask for uh, my vote i said to him that um uh, i might be inclined to vote for his bill uh, if we could talk about a little something, that was the Matthew J. Perry United States Courthouse. And you would check, you would find that that is the first courthouse that Bill Clinton put in his budget. So when the budget, his budget, the president's budget came to Congress, it had the money in it for the Matthew J. Perry United States Courthouse. That's how we got it. So that's how close Bill and I uh, became. However, when his wife was running for president in 2008, uh, the race got real tight. Uh, she had gotten beaten up in Iowa. We're talking about the
0: primaries here.
1: The primary presidential primary of 2008. She lost to Barack Obama in Iowa. Mm-hmm. However, she won in New Hampshire. Then uh, there was a tight race. Obama finally won it in Nevada. So everybody said that South Carolina uh, in January 2008 would define the race. So everybody wanted to win South Carolina. Well, uh, Barack Obama campaigning uh, here. uh, She was
0: campaigning here. And the race got tight. I think historically, initially when the polling started, Mrs. Clinton had a pretty big lead. Oh, Lord, over 20 points. Over 20-point lead. Uh, But... It got tight. Here's
1: what happened. African Americans, the African American voter in South Carolina is a very pragmatic voter. People don't realize that. Now, they were not going to vote. Remember, this was a primary. Before uh, we'd had uh, caucuses, Mm -hmm. the leaders can kind of control caucuses. You can't quite control the primaries the way you can do a caucus. So here we were with this primary, and African-American voters were siding with Hillary Clinton until Iowa, and all of a sudden, here's is just African-American running in an hour that's got around what, four or five percent, uh, maybe less than that, uh, African-American vote. And he wins. So here are people in South Carolina say, wait a minute. This black guy can get white votes. So if he can get white votes, he's got a chance of being president. So when it came here, the black vote started shifting uh, to the black guy. And, of course, Bill Clinton could feel it. Most people could. And he said some things in that primary that I thought, as that legislator said back in 1971, uh, I thought uh, uh, was a little bit over the top. And I said so. Mm-hmm. But
0: because you had officially taken a neutral
1: position. I had. Okay. I had. And I had taken a neutral position uh, simply because we were promised the primary. We were in a contest for it. We beat out Mississippi and Alabama. Of course, Mississippi withdrew. Alabama stayed in. And Michigan, in South Carolina, won, thanks to uh, Joe Irvin, who was chair of the party at the time. Joe came to me and said, Look, I think we can, uh, we can get this primary. Uh, will you help me? And I agreed to help. And so it got down we thought we had the votes to have the primary but then there was one little caveat and I was asked look if South Carolina is awarded this primary will you promise that you will not get publicly involved in it because that could very well uh, ruin uh, the integrity of the primary uh, if you were uh, to get publicly involved I promised that I would not get publicly involved. And I did not get publicly involved, except that when uh, Mrs. Clinton lost by such a big margin. And, and what was the, the spread? It was huge. It was a huge spread. Um, Obama uh, carried 44 of the 46 counties. Pickens County went to Edwards. Orie County uh, went to Clinton and all other counties meant to Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. So it was a massive defeat for her. So Bill Clinton uh, thought that I had put my thumb on the scales, and and he called me at 2.30 in the morning, uh, a little bit upset about that. And so that was not a pleasant conversation. But it's one you needed to have with him. Oh, yes, Uh, I thought so. And I don't uh, back down from a thing I said at that time. But what's so funny about that, when that argument was taking place on the phone, 2.30 in the morning, it woke my wife up. She was sleeping. and she heard, and she she woke up in the middle of the She says, who in the world was that that you were uh, having that conversation with on the phone? And I told her who it was. And when I told her who it was, she asked me a very interesting question. She says, who did you vote for in this primary? <laughs> I mean, go figure. (laughs) Here's someone I'm I'm sleeping with every night. She didn't know how I was voted. I don't know how Bill Clinton felt he should know. Well, and
0: have you patched things up since then?
1: Um, We've spoken many times since then, and we've been very pleasant since then. Uh, We've not talked politics uh, since then. We've talked policy. In fact, he and I sat uh, pretty much next to each other at... um, at Stephanie tubb Jones's funeral, uh, mm-hmm. where we both spoke, and um, and it was very pleasant. That was our first meeting. Mm-hmm. After that, and
0: we've been pleasant ever since. But we have not talked politics. Well, but you know, it's in a way, Congressman, that's sad. But I I was intrigued by the way you described what he said to you as to what that legislator had said back in the nineteen seventies. You know, I've heard other people say. I mean, I find that incredible that. Yeah frankly, as smart a politician as Bill Clinton was, that he would have said something like that.
1: Well, you know, uh, smartness go out of the window
0: when your spouse is involved
1: and emotions take over. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can understand that, Mm -hmm. and I've said it as much. I I had no problem with his feelings. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as he was emotionally involved, I had my youngest daughter, Angela, uh, was getting off work at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, going straight to the Obama headquarters and she would be there to 11 and 12 o'clock at night. My, I mean, she was emotionally involved in that campaign. And uh, even if I had not sworn neutrality, there's no way in the world that I would insult my daughter uh, that way. How could I? And I said to Emily, when she asked me how I voted, I said to her, I said, come on, how could I ever look in the face of our grandchildren if I uh, had not voted for Barack Obama? Mm-hmm. Sure, I voted for him. But I didn't get actively involved in it. and But I don't think that anybody should uh, look upon the fact that the history of, of our country being what it is, the history of the state that I love so much uh, being what it is, uh, that here is an opportunity for an African-American to break through uh, a ceiling uh, that's been there. And it ain't glass. That ceiling is a little tougher than glass uh, that he finally broke through. And you not be proud of that. you not be a part of that. So uh, I just think it's just a little bit strange to to think otherwise.
0: Barack Obama, of course, was elected in 2008, and you moved into a leadership position in the House.
1: Well, uh, that's uh, interesting. I, when I got elected in 1992 and we started to organize, there was a young man, I don't know if you know him now, uh, John Wilburn. John Wilburn is from Patrick. Uh, up in Chesterfield County. He ran for Congress against John Spratt. Uh, and John Spratt ran for Congress the first time. He was chief of staff for the congressman. He was going to get it, the, the staff. So he called me one day and says, look, you're getting here kind of late. I was 52 years old. He says, I really believe that you, you can make a mark for yourself rather quickly if you run for president of the freshman class. So um, he kind of talked me into doing it. We organized a meeting with then-Speaker of the House Foley, and uh, the leader was Gephardt. And so they gave me what was to be a 10- or 15-minute meeting. I didn't know it at the time, but old Wilburn and his crowd leaked that meeting to the press. Uh, And when I came out of the meeting, uh, they had developed this narrative that I was discussing with them uh, my run for president of the freshman class. And uh, it was uh, when I got out of the meeting, they had some favorable things to say about me. It all had to do with the fact that in a five-person race, I had gotten 56% of the vote, kind of unheard of. And so their favorable statements had to do with that. Well, I ran for president of the freshman class against Eva Clinton. Well, 1993 had been declared by the United Nations as the Year of the Woman. And I knew uh, or felt uh, that I was not going to beat Eva Clayton, though there were people who thought otherwise. So we concocted this deal that uh, both of us would be president uh, of the freshman class. In the first session, 1993, she would preside over the class. Uh, In the second session of the 103rd Congress, 1994, I would preside. Uh, that motion was put on the floor by Carrie Meeks, who had just gotten elected from Florida. Uh, it was seconded by people like Corinne Brown from Florida. And a, f- a bunch of people seconded and it passed unanimously. Uh, and so that's how I got to be president of the freshman class. Uh, people were very pleased with the way I conducted myself as president of the class. And five years later, I was unanimously elected chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. And so I then started looking at other leadership positions. And I decided to run for vice chair of the full Democratic caucus. That was a real challenge because a candidate was from New York, who was African-American, whose roots are in York County here, Gregory Meeks. And there was a candidate, a female, uh, from California. And in our caucus at that time was just me and John Spratt. So when I offered, uh, people said to me, man, you're crazy. Uh, in the world you can win well what happened was at the time I was elected chair of the Congressional Black Caucus I was also elected uh, to the Appropriations Committee and the party had gotten in some difficulty and needed a seat on the Appropriations Committee uh, so Gephardt could keep a promise he had made uh, to a gentleman from New York who had switched parties he laid out a scheme which I didn't think would work and I told him so he angrily said to me well, do you have a better idea? And I said, yes, I do have a better idea. He said, what is it? I said, you can have my seat. I'll take leave from the Appropriations Committee. He said, well, why would you do that? I said, well, I'll do it if you answer positively to this uh, memorandum I'm going to send you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sent him this memorandum. He told me to send it. I sent it. They went through it. I told them the things that I wanted for my district and for my state. They went through the memorandum and agreed to everything I had on the memorandum. So I left the committee. They got my seat. So when I ran, a uh, few people knew about the memorandum, but everybody knew I had, uh, had left my seat. So when I ran for vice chair and in, in that hotly contested race, I wrote a letter to every member of the caucus. And I said in that letter that anybody wanting to lead this caucus ought to be able to put the caucus's interests above that of his or her own. And down in South Carolina, we always say you can best tell what a person will do by looking at what he or she has done. And when this caucus interest was at peril, I gave up my seat on the Appropriations Committee. That resonated with everybody because everybody was crazy. Who would leave the Appropriations Committee? But I have won without a runoff, and you got to have 50% plus
0: one, and so I won. You talked about getting things from South Carolina, and— you know, historically, it is so interesting. It used to be until the 21st century, every politician that South Carolina elected to Congress bragged about how much they brought yeah. home. Now they brag about how much they don't do right. for the state. It's, it's a real anomaly. I mean, we are, we're a small state. We're a poor state. Yes. And we brag about not doing things for South Carolina.
1: Well, that's one of the things that I uh, will always uh, break with, because I I do believe uh, that we are still way behind the curve in a lot of things in South Carolina. And so for us to take the position that we have to go with the popular uh, thought in South Carolina is not to do what's best for South Carolina. There are times when we may line up with popular thought, Uh, but I think that we have to look at the state's interest uh, and, and keep that in mind uh, when we are trying to to get things done. For instance, South Carolina, when I got elected to Congress, uh, our dollars uh, in highway funds, we were getting about 78% back out of the federal bureaucracy for every dollar that we put in because of the way the law was. One of the first things I did when I was on the Appropriations Committee uh, was moved to correct that, and it was corrected in T-21, and I was on the conference committee that did that. And so I think that we need to really give some serious thought to following the national trend uh, in stuff like this. We need to really think about what needs to be done for South Carolina and for South Carolinians and uh, make our decisions based upon that.
0: Well, obviously, the Port of Charleston is, is a prime example.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very proud of the fact that Fritz Hollins taught me a lot about air market. I'll never forget when I, um, I was able to cut the deal together. Uh, Fritz had put some money in uh, to deepen the Charleston Harbor one year. And um, I, I did a deal with a congressman who had been a congressman from um, from North Carolina, had become uh, the core of engineers person. And I was able to get uh, much more money than Fritz Hollins had, had gotten. I'll never forget, we went down to... Uh, to dedicate the port, he got to the mic, and you know, switching his uh, Gullah Geechee German, all that, whatever <laughs> that brogue is, he's got. Um, this is the first time anybody ever got more money out the house, and I was able to get out of the Senate. But they gave me credit for having done that. It, it um, that port is important to the state, and we ought not be worried about uh, whether or not you get the money through marks or whatever other reason. Let's get the money. Let's get the port. And let's do what needs to be done for South Carolina.
0: OK. Well, Congressman, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Okay. Any, any last words you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off today? Yes, sir. I would like to say that to all of our uh, listeners,
1: the, the fact of the matter is that this book was written with a three-part test after every chapter. After every chapter, I ask myself, would those students I used to teach world history to, would they understand what I just wrote? Would they get a lesson from what I just wrote? Would they be motivated by what I just wrote? And I'm proud of the fact that when I go on Amazon.com and I look at the comments being made, most of the readers, all except two readers, have given this book five stars. Those two readers gave it four stars. And one of them is a graduate of Mather Academy. I don't know what in the world she was thinking. Uh, But uh, (laughs) I I, I think that they will find that this is a book uh, that young people uh, would be motivated by.
0: Well, Congressman James Clyburn... Representative for the 6th District of South Carolina and author of an autobiography, Blessed Experiences, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Congressman Jim Clyburn is never at a loss for words. He always has a good story to tell. And in his autobiography, Blessed Experiences, Genuinely Southern, Proudly Black, he shares those stories with us. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV radio.